This week on Wealth Track, a rare interview with great value investor Stephen Romick. How is this contrarian thinker investing his legendary FPA Crescent Fund today? We want to own higher quality businesses on average than we have in the past. Very mindful of what the that these businesses are growing businesses, and that we uh, don't want to be as much in cash as we've been historically. Stephen Romick joins us this week on Consuelo Mac Wealth Track. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Funding provided by Morgan Le Fay Dreams Foundation, ClearBridge Investments, Royce Investment Partners, Matthews Asia, First Eagle Investment Management, and Strategus Asset Management. Hello and welcome to this edition of WealthTrack. I'm Consuelo Mack. Jack be nimble, Jack be quick isn't a concept one usually associates with long-term value investors. But sometimes extraordinary times call for exceptional responses. The first quarter of 2020 was one such event for this week's guest. Here's how FBA Crescent Stephen Romick described it to shareholders in his 2020 first quarter letter. The stock market extended its long advance well into the beginning of the quarter, and then the correction hit like a Category 5 hurricane, entirely erasing, at least temporarily, those historic gains and then some. From peak to trough during the quarter, both the MSCI All-Country World Index and the S&P 500 Index declined about 34%, while the FPA Crescent Fund declined 29%. For the S&P 500, this was the steepest decline of 30% or more in history, occurring more quickly than what previously were historic declines in 1929, 1931, and 1934. Well, what did Romick and his team do in the midst of the carnage? They bought stocks. Again, to the commentary. We put almost 30% of the fund's cash to work during the quarter, with its cash position shrinking to 26% of the portfolio from 36%. We added more than a dozen new holdings and are genuinely happy with what we own overall. Well, what did they buy and how is the portfolio position now? In a rare television interview, Stephen Romick joins us for this edition of WealthTrack. Romick is co-portfolio manager of the FBA Crescent Fund, which he founded in 1993 and ran for many years before bringing on his current team. Since its inception, this go-anywhere, invest-in-anything balanced fund has delivered better than 10% annualized returns, besting the stock market and its balanced portfolio benchmarks by substantial margins. FBA Crescent carries a gold Morningstar analyst rating for the same reasons it was Morningstar's Allocation Fund Manager of the Year in 2013. Their capital preservation and strong stewardship, which helped the fund achieve its goal of delivering equity-like returns with less equity risk over the long haul. Now, that doesn't preclude taking more equity risk on occasion, which is what Romick did in early 2020. I asked him why. Well, our goal first is to generate an equity rate of return, and we're trying to do that in the context of, of keeping risk, you know, at a reasonable level, which is to be somewhat less in the markets over time. And we are able to do that, and we have historically anyway, been able to do that by investing across 
regions, the capital structure, buying convertible bonds, senior debt, bank debt, as well as common equities and preferred equities. So in the first quarter of 2020, we saw an opportunity to put capital to work when stocks were, were trading down because of the fears surrounding COVID. Now, crystal ball is clearly not perfect because we were early in our, in our purchasing and some of the, the companies we bought continued to decline and then subsequently have, have rebounded you know, you know, quite nicely since. But we put about 10 points to work in that first quarter of, of uh, 2020. And right, so, cash went from 36% to 26% of the FPA Crescent portfolio, right? And you put that to work in the stock market. Yep. Quickly, too. You did it, it was pretty, pretty fast. It was, it, was, it was pretty quick. And, and yeah. you know, we didn't know how long the market would remain down. And we didn't know where the bottom would be. And we're not good at picking tops or bottoms. We operate in our business you know, with a great deal of humility, not having any idea how to time the market. We just have a, done a reasonably good job over time understanding what value looks like and what's a, an attractive risk reward and, and allocating capital accordingly. Did, did you have a list of companies that, that you, you know, were, had targeted to buy at, at certain levels, which they reached, and that's when you moved in, or how, how did it work? We, we always have a list of, of companies mm-hmm. that we're, we'd like to, you know, our shopping list, if you will, that we'd like to own at a certain, at a certain price point. Right. But the world changed so rapidly. There are lots of companies that we had to really work to underwrite quickly that weren't on our shopping list because those companies that were more impacted by, by the complete stoppage of, of, of the economy globally, I mean, literally on a simultaneous basis, many of these companies, particularly those tied to travel, it were you know were getting decimated, and those weren't so on what our shopping list at the time. We owned up you know on the travel side of the equation included companies like uh, uh, Marriott and Booking, as mm-hmm. a couple of examples. Yep, and um, and aerospace uh, as well. And we had positions in we had positions or, in aerospace. Or, we had positions in yep. financials, some of which we did increase on, as they were uh, as they were declining. Companies. You know, you know, look, the, the valuations were changing on a daily basis, sometimes intraday, 20 right. plus percent intraday. And one thing I can, you know, was confident of, that although not knowing exactly what the value was at a moment in time or what the value would be in the future, I was confident that the value wasn't moving around 20 percent, 30 percent intraday. And mm-hmm. we had companies like AIG in the portfolio that... Started the year at 50 or so, went to 55, and at one point intraday was trading down, you know, $16, $17, you know, at one point in March. And and clearly, you know, the the business was not worth as little as that in our view, and then the market subsequently has borne that out. You're known as a contrarian thinker, so that was clearly uh, a contrarian move at the time. And, uh, you know, tell us what your client reaction was. Well, I mean, candidly, I mean, we did not cover ourselves in glory in the first quarter of 2020. Uh-huh. The stocks that we held in our portfolio, many of them were had greater economic sensitivity and went down a lot more than the market. So our portfolio was down as much of the market, which is not something that, that we or our clients or our customers, it's happened at points in time, right? Uh, but in big drawdowns, it generally has not been the case. But it was an unusual set of circumstances. And so the financials, which are inherently, you know, leveraged, you know, went down a lot more than the market. As an example, the aerospace companies went down more than the market. The travel companies went down more than the market. We start buying, you know, a, a Marriott, you know, at a certain level at 80 or so, and it goes down, you know, it goes down to 60. 
you know, it, it's, uh, it looks fine today, but it didn't look so fine. You know, now it's right. 140 and change. didn't look so fine, you know, back in, in March of uh, 2020. The end result uh, of of the buying that you did uh, in the first first quarter of 2020 is that you now have a higher percentage of of equities, 70 percent of the portfolio than at almost any time in the past. Underlying quality is higher than at any point you can recall. So, what where is the high quality in in your portfolio? Well, when, let me and, let me let me take a step back and, and yeah. think about you know as as you know we are. We're value investors, but by value investors, right. we just, it's its a fuzzy line that separates growth and value. And we've always preferred on those businesses that were growing businesses. In the traditional sense of value, the Graham and Dodd you know, definition of value is you had the protection of the balance sheet. You had right. hidden assets on the balance sheet, you buy a below book value, maybe it didn't assets in the form of its real estate, could have been intellectual property or a, or a, the, the potential for a, a legal settlement or something along those along those lines. But we came to realize over the years has been that, you know, a margin of safety is just understand what the value of that asset is, and it can show up in the value of the business. So you can judge what you think that business is worth today and, and into the future, and growth can bail you out of a lot of problems. So nothing is forever. Nothing. Right. And so what we, we spend our days trying to figure out what, you know, what businesses are going to thrive down the road. And in doing so, we are very sensitive to, to a understanding what will do well in the future, understanding what the competitive threats might be today and tomorrow, how they might be disrupted, and make sure we're paying a fair price for those businesses. So there's different levels of growth within our portfolio. A, a Google is growing much faster than a Alphabet, much faster than a Lafarge Wholesome, you know, cement company. So value investing seems to have evolved, which I'm assuming it's just natural because businesses have evolved. I don't want to speak for the world of value investing. No, but only speak F- for ourselves. Crescent. We, value investing has not evolved to the extent that we want to invest with a margin of safety. Price uh-huh. does matter. Okay. Price has always mattered. Price will always matter. And so as a result, we stay away from certain inflated parts of the market. We have 200-ish companies out of the largest 1,500 companies in the U.S. that, that have a collective value of $2.5 trillion, but have lost money in each of the last three years. Some of those right. companies will do fine in the future. But you know, it's, it's incumbent upon us to understand what is likely to do well you know, prospectively. And that's always been the case. Mm-hmm. And, you know, as a value investor and a contrarian investor, so how do you justify like an alphabet, for instance? I mean, is it undervalued? I think that if you look at, at a lot of the companies that we have in our portfolio, yeah. and alphabet is just an example of that. We first bought it back in 2011. We mm-hmm. bought it at a point in time when when people were fearful of the economy weakening, the EU, you know, unwinding, and right. the advertising, you know, revenues that they were receiving would be harmed as a result of the economic sensitivity of advertising. So we actually picked it up at that point in time with what an okay. adjusted basis was a, was a low teens multiple, which, which, which that's adjusting for the cash flows in the portfolio and other non-earning assets in the portfolio. And even today, if you take out the cash, if you take out a number of these different non-earning assets, the autonomous you know, vehicle side of the business, Waymo or uh, YouTube, I'm not going to you know, sit here and proselytize and, and say that it's it's really cheap today because it isn't right. as cheap as it was when we bought it. But when you think about the tax efficiency of owning a good business that should do well over the next 10 years and not paying an, an excessive price for it, it's something that we, re, that we retain in the portfolio. And Facebook? 
Facebook, we, we similarly, we bought in you know in the midst of um, of scandal and bad news. Mm-hmm. We bought it in the midst of the Cambridge Analytica scandal, and so there's companies like like that that will buy at points in time where again non-earning assets in the portfolio that we can back out and assume some you know reasonable value for, and we 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 could look ourselves in the mirror and feel that we're paying a very reasonable price for those those businesses, and those are businesses that have been growing, you know, like gangbusters, and so even if you pay. A little bit too much, which thankfully we we didn't. But if you do mm-hmm. in a growing business, growth can bail you out. Now, growth isn't isn't forever, and every business reaches a certain point where they go X growth. You know, at some point in time, right? Can be decades from now. So it's something we're always mindful of. What would you characterize the valuation level of the portfolio today? It's obviously more expensive than it was a year ago. But you know, does it? Are you comfortable with the valuations in your portfolio? We're never comfortable. <laughs> I mean, we live <laughs> life with a, a certain morosity, which which keeps a keeps I think allows us to have a little bit of a there's an edge, right? Where because yeah. we're just we never we never relax. We always wonder, you know, what couldn't can go wrong, and there's always more things that could go wrong than will go wrong. And we can't tell you that any one company or portfolio is going to do better than another company. In our basket of you know the number of the tech stocks we own, some of them won't work out as well as as others. But if you look at them yeah. in the in, in, in their totality, we think that we're pretty, we feel pretty good about owning them where they are. Now, our portfolio across is trading at a discount to the market. And, okay. you and know, the market our, being the S&P 500? Come, look at the market as being the S&P 500 uh, and the MSCI Aqui. You know, 43% okay. of, our, of our equity book is actually domiciled outside the United States today. Right. And then if you look at the fact that we are cheaper than the market, Although, as you pointed out, we are more expensive than we were a year ago, but we are mm-hmm. still at a discount to the market. And if you buy into what the consensus estimates are, and I can't tell you that they're right. These are not our numbers. These are just the Wall Street consensus estimates. Our right. portfolio has more growth than the market. So if we have a portfolio is growing faster than the market, trading at discounts to the market, we should do reasonably well over time. And when you're talking about your portfolio, you're talking about this the 70% side of our portfolio. that you right. the equity. So the, the long portfolio, which has actually performed you know, extremely well. Let's talk about cash for those people who are not familiar with the FBA crescent and how you view cash. Yeah, you're, you're, you're highlighting how we are different than the, the right. run-of-the-mill mutual fund, which, which we are, for better or worse. I mean, one could say... Uh, that we, we have more ways to lose money than the average mutual fund because we mm-hmm. can invest in so many different vehicles. Right. And it's not something that's easily replicated in, 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 in certain other you know, strategies you know, that are out there. You know, we have the ability to, to invest in, in, in private credit, you know, in which we do in a, mm-hmm. in a small way. We have invest, the ability to invest in certain other less liquid you know, investments in the portfolio uh, that we've right. been able to take advantage of. I don't want, it's not the cart that drives the horse, certainly. Because we are a public fund, we want to make sure that we maintain the appropriate levels of liquidity. But I've taken in the past large uh, stakes in, in high yield and distressed. Yes. And that's not something that ends up in the portfolio today because at 4% yields, it's, it's return-free risk in our view. Because that 4% uh-huh. yield in the high yield market is before some level of defaults net of recoveries. So return-free risk is the way you look at the high-yield market. Today, you know, anyway. And so when cash, this leads us to cash. So when cash ends up in the portfolio, so A, we have this invested exposure that's more in equities than it's been in the past. So we look more ordinary, less differentiated from a lot of other funds, you know, today. And hopefully there'll be a point in time where we look a little bit 
um, more like what we've been in the past, which is right. in different asset classes, but I don't know when that might be. Because we don't see opportunities you know, in high yield interest, and we don't want to be completely disinvested, we do you know, have a, an idea that over the next 10 years that, that we will, despite what will be levels of volatility in the market for reasons that we can't ascertain at the moment, uh, we will do better in our equity book than we would do in cash or in high yields. And that's mm-hmm. the strong conviction that we have today. So we're willing to accept a little bit more volatility, but the cash ends up by default. Cash will build because of a lack of other opportunities. It is a residual right. of our investment process. It is not a top-down decision that says, well, the market's expensive, so we should be in cash. At one point, mm-hmm. when I think, you know, when I interviewed you in 2012 and 2014, cash was actually, it was a valuable asset to hold. And the other day on the phone, you told me that cash is trash. Cash is as uncomfortable to own cash, right. you know, at that point in time. Um, particularly as you, as you look back even pre, you know, that interview date, if you look back to 2007, you could get a, you know, treasury and, you know, an you know, intermediate term treasury and get a 5% yield. You can't right. get that today. No. And so the, the profligate spending of sovereign nations uh, that are printing money and borrowing money right. uh, translates into some level of inflation, then, then, then owning, uh, you know, stocks may not be such a bad thing, at least nominally. What the real rate mm-hmm. of return will be, you know, you know who, you know, who knows what that's going to end up being. But on a risk reward basis, we we think that that it is more important to be more invested today. If you really think about what the next, you know, five ten years holds. I remember, uh, you know, another interview that we did. I think after the global financial crisis, where you were um, really bemoaning the fact that the the Federal Reserve was you know, going on this kind of un- unprecedented quantitative easing and this monetary experiment and, you know, the, the debt levels that the government was taking on. And of course, it's now, you know, multiples of that. But I don't hear you complaining about it. Have you just given up or, uh, or you know, is, is, is it, is it, is it? <laughs> you can't beat them, join them. No, it's, it, <laughs> it's, we're, we're living through a grand monetary, you know, experiment. We have no idea yeah. how this will end. I'm just as right. insecure now, if not more so than I was then. But when it ends and how it ends or how this is how the story unfolds is anybody's guess. So we right. try and do with my partners, Brian Selmo and Mark Landecker, is to try and create a portfolio that's robust to multiple outcomes. And, you know, we're mindful of, of what we own and the price we pay for it. We want to mm-hmm. own higher quality businesses on average than we have in the past. Very mindful of what the, that these businesses are growing businesses and that we uh, don't want to be as much in cash as we've been historically, because mm-hmm. there will be a point in time we'll be able to put capital to work again. Uh, there will be an, there will be another downdraft for for you know X Y or Z reasons, and we're going to be there to take advantage of that with our money alongside of our clients in doing so. So, what do you see as FPA Crescent's role in a portfolio? Given the breadth of the portfolio. Given the asset allocation movements within the portfolio, I think it's one can be very comfortable to have it as a hub and a hub and spoke strategy. But I also think there are people who will use it that way, and there are others who will use it more as the spoke because we will go do high yield and distressed. I mean, in 2008 and into 2009, we took our high yield and distressed exposure from 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 five percent or so to well over thirty percent in the course of five months. And so we really, you know, ramped up that exposure. Right. And that's not something you see in a, in a typical fund. Again, you can make big decisions 
and you know completely ignore certain asset classes if you decide they're just not attractive. Or, and the same is true of industry groups. We used to have a lot of, uh, of energy um, early right. in the OOs, and we sold out of all of that. We went through a, a, you know, a very long period of time where we didn't own any financials, mm-hmm. uh, equities. And we went into the financial crisis with uh, actually negative net exposure in financials. We were marginally you know, short, net short you know, right. uh, financials. And then we started buying distressed debt of financials. And then subsequently we started buying, you know, as, as they re, many of these banks reliquified, we began to buy some of these banks earlier in the last decade. And so we can be in and out of different industry groups. I mean, we, you know, have a large active share, high active share in our portfolio, where right. we don't, you know, we're not looking to mimic any kind of index, which will make us look really great at points in times and other points in time where we're, we're right, but we're early. Or maybe mm-hmm. we're wrong at times. At times we we you know, we're, we don't we certainly don't always get it right. I mean that's it, that doesn't feel that good when you didn't own Amazon. You know. Right, right. That um, was a mistake. Stephen, have you uh, looked at any of the Chinese, the big Chinese companies, Alibaba, Baidu? There's a lot of different businesses, you know, within each of these companies. Right. From shopping to music to search, and which one will do better is something we can't we can't uh, accurately project. So we, we own more than one thinking that there's, there's very good opportunities within a number of these different businesses. What's the most contrarian investment you've got in the FBA Crescent portfolio today? Well, the fact that we're not fully invested in having cash is probably, I mean, I think off the top of my head, is probably the most contrarian investment. Most people are running more fully invested. So right. that would be one contrarian investment. Another one is there's been a uh, a lot of interest in 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 SPACs, right? Special and they really companies. these blank these blank check companies yes. really just have exploded. I mean, there's yes. in the last fifteen months, there's been almost two hundred billion dollars raised for these companies that have purchasing power. You know, you know, at least one turn in excess of that. So it's Tremendous, you know, value will be will be you know, potentially created or you know or lost, as the case may be, you know, as these as they find acquisition targets. But that's a huge amount of money, and people are they have been betting on the con that these are going to be there's a lot of opportunity, you know, available for these companies, and many of these companies will be quite successful. Such that in February, the average SPAC without an announced deal, just the prospects they might find something good, right was trading at a 25% premium to its trust value, its net asset value. 25% premium <laughs> for no deal that's announced. So that's that's Crazy. certainly on the come. We thought so. Now, since then it's really, you know, pulled back quite, you know, dramatically. Mm-hmm. We've been accumulating a, a basket of SPACs that are trading, you know, at or below their 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 trust value, $10, including warrants. Uh-huh. That such that if there is a deal that ends up being an attractive deal, we can potentially make a lot of money. But if there's a deal that we don't like, we can just vote it, you know, get up, you know, you know, basically redeem our shares, let somebody else go along, you right, know, uh, and, and, and take it. And so it's it's a terrific setup for us because, you know, heads heads we win, tails we win. We just it's hard to lose. It's it's pretty hard to lose money, and we can make a decent rate of return. Now I don't know what we'll make. It might be a very poor rate of return, but the chance to make a good rate of return with with having not much downside is 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 the setup that we always seek. 
Right. But if you can buy something out or below trust value and get a potential rate of return that that is in the in the very very low single digits at worst, and and something that could be significantly better than that, it's not a bad thing to bad not a bad thing to own. And they're available to all of us because they're traded publicly, <laughs> right? Yep. So, so you're you're big. just putting together your own portfolio of SPACs. So the the one investment for a long term diversified portfolio. I don't know about a long term diversified portfolio, but you already just. Uh, as you stated, these there's a there's a finite life to these. They end up making an acquisition and despacking, or they end up uh, not making an acquisition and giving the money back. So it's not long term, but as an intermediate term investment, I think it's a very attractive risk reward. <laughs> Thanks, Stephen. So great Thanks. to have you on Wealth Tracking. Good to see you. Thank you. At the close of every wealth track, we try to give you one suggestion to help you build and protect your wealth over the long term. This week's action point is look for portfolio managers investing substantial amounts in their funds. Historically, funds with high manager investment have performed better than those without it. Having substantial skin in the game is a sign of managers' commitment and belief in their own strategies. FBA Crescent is a case in point. After the tumultuous first quarter of 2020, Romick and his portfolio managers added to their investment in Crescent, and as they told shareholders, continue to have the largest portion of their invested net worth in FPA strategies alongside our firm's clients. The key here is they continue to have the largest portion of their invested net worth in FPA strategies, not a token amount. And that's the kind of participation you should expect from managers of the funds that you invest in. Well, next week, a top-rated bond manager who is proud to be boring. Mary Ellen Stanek talks about the all-weather strategy at the Baird Funds. In this week's Extra Feature, Stephen Romick shares his personal and professional lessons learned from the pandemic. It's available on WealthTalk.com. And for those of you following us on Facebook, Twitter, and our YouTube channel, keep up the good work. We appreciate the time you spend with us, no matter what the format. Make the week ahead a healthy, profitable, and productive one.